Chapter 21 of Theodore Savage, The Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 21. It was in the third spring after the ruin of man that Ada's time was accomplished and she bore a son to her husband. On a day in late April or early May, there was going and coming round the shelter that was Theodore's home. The elder women of the tribe, by right of their experience, took possession and from early morning till long after nightfall, they busied themselves with the torment and mystery of birth. And with the aid of nothing but their rough and unskilled kindliness, Ada suffered and brought forth a squalling red mannequin, the heir of the ages and their outcast. The child lived, and despite its mother's fecklessness, was lusty as a boy, ran shoeless and in summer naked as Adam, and grew to his primitive manhood without letters, knowing of the world that was past and gone, only legends derived from his elders. His coming to Theodore meant more than paternity. The birth of his son made him one with the life of the tribe. By the child's wants and helplessness, still more when other children followed. His father was tied to an existence which offered the necessary measure of security, to the stretch of land where he had the right to hunt unmolested, the patch he had the right to sow and reap, and the company of those who would aid him in protecting his children. He had given his hostages to fortune and the limits set to his secret expeditions in search of a lost world were the limits set by the needs of those dependent on him, by his fear of leaving them too long, unprotected, unprovided for. He learned much from his firstborn and the brothers and sisters who followed him, not only the intimate lore of his fatherhood, but the lore and outlook of man-bred uncivilized, and the traditions in making of a world to come, which in all things would resemble the old traditions handed down by a world that had died. His children lived naturally, the life that had been forced upon their father and inherited ignorance as a birthright. Growing up, such as lived through the perils of childhood without knowledge of the past and untempted by the sin of the intellect, the oath which Theodore, like every new-made father, was called on to swear in the name of the child he had given to the tribe, had a meaning to those who had lived through disaster and witnessed the ruin of man. To the next generation, the vow was a formula only, a renunciation of that they had never possessed. They could not, if they would, instruct their children in the secrets of God, the forbidden lore of the intellect. By the time his first son was of an age to think and question, Theodore understood more than the growth and workings of a child mind, much that had hitherto seemed dark and fantastic in the origins of a world that had ended with the ruin of man. It was the workings of a child mind that made oddly clear to him the significance of primitive religious doctrine and beliefs handed down through the ages, the once meaningless doctrine of the fall of man and the belief in a vanished golden age. These, the boy, unprompted, evolved from his own knowledge and the talk of his elders, accepting them spontaneously and naturally. In Theodore's childhood, the golden age had been a myth and pleasant fancy of the ancients, and the fall of man as distant as the book of Genesis and unreal as the tale of Puss in Boots. To his children, one and all, the legends of his infancy were close and undoubted realities. 
The golden age was a wondrous condition of yesterday. The fall, the ruin, its catastrophic overthrow, an experience their father had survived. The fields and hillsides where they worked, played, and wandered were still littered with strange relics of the golden age, the vanished, fruitful, incomprehensible world whence their parents had been cast into the outer darkness of everyday hardship as a penalty for the sin of mankind. The sin unforgivable of grasping at the knowledge which had made them like unto gods, a mad ambition which not only they but their children's children must atone for in the sweat of their brow. More than once Theodore suspected in the secret recesses of his youngsters' minds a natural and wondering contempt for the men of the last generation, the fools and blind who had overreached themselves and forfeited the splendor of the golden age by their blundering greed and unwisdom. So history was writing itself in their minds, making of a race that had acquiesced in science and drifted to destruction, a legendary people whose sin was deliberate, a people whose encroachments had angered a self-important deity and brought down his wrath upon their heads. It was a history inseparable from religious belief, its opening chapters identical in all essentials with the legendary history of an epoch that had ceased to exist. Once his eight-year boy, planted sturdily before him, demanded a plain explanation of the folly of his father's contemporaries. Why, he asked, frowning, did the people want to find out God's secrets? Theodore thought of Ada and the countless millions like her, leaned his chin on his hand, and smiled grimly. Some of us didn't, he answered. Some of us, many of us, had no interest in the secrets of God. We made use of them when others found them out, but we ourselves were quite content to be ignorant, ignorant in all things. I know, the child assented, puzzled by his father's smile. The good ones didn't want to, the good ones like you and mommy. But the others, all the wicked ones, why did they? It was stupid of them. They wanted to find out, said Theodore, and there have always been people like that, from the beginning, the very beginning of things, ever since there were men on the earth. The desire to know burned them like a fire. There is an old story of a woman who brought great trouble into the world because she wanted to know. She was given a box and told never to open it, but she disobeyed because she was filled with a great curiosity to know what had been put inside it. Her longing tormented her night and day, and she could think of nothing else, till at last she opened the box and horrible creatures flew out. The boy, interested, demanded more of Pandora and the horrible creatures. Is it a true story? he asked, when his father had given such further details as he managed to remember and invent. Yes, Theodore told him, I believe it is a true story. It was so long ago that we cannot tell exactly how it happened. I may not have told it to you quite rightly, but on the whole, it is a true story. And the wicked people, our wicked people who brought ruin on the world, were much like Pandora and her box. It was the same thing over again. They wanted to know so strongly that they forgot everything else. They had only the longing to find out, and it seemed as if nothing else mattered. Weren't they afraid? The boy asked doubtfully, still puzzled by his father's odd smile. Afraid of what would happen to them? No, Theodore answered, until it was too late and they saw what they had done. I don't think many were afraid. Here and there, before the end, some began to be frightened, but most of them didn't see where they were going. But they must have known, his son insisted, frowning. 
God told them he would punish them if they tried to learn his secrets. Yes, Theodore assented, with the orthodox truth, more deceptive than a lie, that meant one thing to him and another to the world barbarian. Yes, God told them so, but though he said it very plainly, not many of them understood. They were talking, he knew, across more than the gulf between the mind of a child and a man. Between them lay the centuries, the barrier of many generations. To his son, now and always, dead and gone chemists and mathematicians must appear in the likeness of present evildoers, raiders of the territory and robbers of the property of God. To his son, now and always, inventors and spectacled professors in mortarboards would be greedy, foolish chieftains who planned war against heaven as a tribe plans assault upon its rivals. These were and must always be his wicked, his destroyers of the golden age, his life and outlook being what it was. How should he picture the war against heaven as pure-hearted, instinctive, and unconscious? Why not, the child persisted, repeating the question when his father stroked his head absently. Because they did not know themselves. If they had known themselves and their own passions, they would have seen why knowledge was forbidden. Yes, said the child vaguely, and passed to the matter that interested him. Why didn't the others make them understand, you and the other good ones? Because, said Theodore, we ourselves didn't understand. That was the blunder, the sin of the rest of us. We didn't seek after knowledge, but we took the fruits of other men's knowledge and ate. Unconsciously, he made use of the familiar hereditary simile. I'd have killed them, his son declared firmly. Every one, I'd have told them to stop, and then if they wouldn't, I'd have killed them, thrown them in the river, or hammered them with stones till they died. That's what I'd have done. No, Theodore told him, you wouldn't have killed them. One of them said the same thing to me, one of the wicked ones. He said we should have stamped out the race of them. Afterwards, I knew he was right, but at the time I didn't understand. I couldn't. I heard what he said, but the words had no real meaning for me. He saw something that was almost contempt in his son's eyes and took the grubby face between his hands. That same wicked man, who was also very wise, told me something else that is as true for you as it was for me. He said that we never know anything except through our own experience. I might tell you that the sun is warm or the water is cold, but if you had never felt the heat of the sun or the cold of the water, you would not know what I meant. And it was like that with us, there were always some few who understood that knowledge was a flame that, in the end, would burn us. But the rest of us couldn't even try to save ourselves until after we were burned. He stroked the grubby face as he released it. That's the law, son, and all that matters you'll learn that way. That way and no other, just as we did. In time, he found himself recalling, with strange interest, the fairy tales of his childhood. He spent long hours reweaving and piecing them together, searching his memory for half-remembered fragments of what had once seemed fantasy or nonsense invented for the nursery. The hobgoblins and heroes of his nursery days were transformed and made suddenly possible. Looking through the mind of a new generation, he saw that they might have been as human and prosaic as himself. More, he came to know that he and his commonplace civilized contemporaries would be the heroes and hobgoblins of the future. The process, the odd transformation, would be simple as it was inevitable. 
it was forbidden by the spirit and letter of the vow to awaken youthful curiosity concerning the past, youthful curiosity whose end might be youthful experiment. But women, in spite of all vows and prohibitions, would gossip to each other of their memories. While they talked, their children would listen, open-eyed and puzzled. And when a youngster demanded the meaning of an unfamiliar term or impossible happening, the explanation, as a matter of course, took the form of analogy, of comparison with the known and familiar. The aeroplane was a bird extinct and monstrous, larger, many times larger, than the flapping heron or the owl. The bomb was more dreadful than a lightning stroke. The tram, train, or motor a gigantic wheelbarrow that ran without man or beast to drag it. The ignorance of science of those who told, the yet greater ignorance of those who heard, resulted inevitably before many years had passed in myth and religious legend, an outwardly fantastic statement of actual fact and truth. The children, piecing together their fragments of incomprehensible information, made their own image of the past, to be handed on later to their sons. An image of a world fantastic, enchanted and amazing, destroyed as a judgment for sin against God by strange fire-breathing beasts and bolts from heaven. A world of gigantic fauna and bewitched chariots, likewise of sorcerers, their masters, whom God and the righteous had exterminated. So, Theodore realized, as his children grew and he heard them talk, must a race that knew nothing of science explain the dead wonders of science, from the message that flashes round the world in seconds to the petrol engine and the magic slumber of chloroform. That which is outside the power and beyond the understanding of man has always been denounced as magic, and steam, electricity, chemical action were outside the power and beyond the understanding of men born after the ruin. In default of understanding, they must needs fall back on a wizardry known to their fathers. Thus he and his contemporaries to their children's children would be semi-supernatural beings, fit comrades of Sinbad or Perseus or the Quatrefils Iman, giants with great voices that called to each other across continents and vasty deeps, possessors of seven-league boots, magic steeds, and flying carpets, of all the stock and trade of the fairy tale. Belief in the demigod was a natural growth and product of the world wherein his son grew to manhood. Given time and black ignorance of mechanics and science, and the engineer would be promoted to a giant or demigod, who by virtue of a strength that was more than human, dammed rivers, drained bogs, and pierced mountains. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, and always in the past there had been giants, titans, and Hercules, removing mighty obstacles and cleansing the stables of Angius. He came to understand that all wonders were facts misinterpreted and that given time and ignorance, a post office underling tapping out his Morse code might be seen as a genie or an Oberon, the absolute master of obedient sprites who could lay their girdles round the earth. And he pictured a college-bred, sober-suited Hercules planning his labors in the office of a limited company jotting down figures, estimating costs, and scanning the reports of geologists. Figures and reports, like his tunnels and dams, would pass into the limbo of science, forgotten and forbidden. But the memory of his labors, his defiance of brute nature, would live on as the story of a demigod. And the childhood that was barbarism 
would explain his achievements by a giant strength that could tear down trees and move mountains. The idea took fast root and grew in him, the idea of a world that, time and again, had returned to the helplessness of childhood. He saw science as the burden that, time and again, the race found intolerable, as dead sea fruit that turned to ashes in the mouth, as riches that humanity strove for, attained and renounced, renounced because it dared not keep them. In his hours of dreaming, he made fairies and demigods out of dapper little sedentary persons, the senders of forgotten telegrams, with forgotten engines, motor cars, and aeroplanes, at their insignificant command. And once, in the night, when Ada snored beside him, he asked himself if Lucifer, son of the morning, Lucifer who strove with his god and was worsted, were more in his beginnings than a scientist intent on his work. A chemist, a spectacled professor, resplendent only in degrees and learning, an archfiend of knowledge who had sinned against God in the secret places of a laboratory and not upon the shining plains of heaven, and whom ignorance and time had glorified into the tempter, the evil one, setting him magnificently in the flaming hell which he and his like, by their skill and patience, had created and let loose upon man. This, at least, was certain, that in years to come and under other names, his children's children would retell the story of Lucifer, son of the morning, the enemy of man who was flung out of heaven because, in his overweening vanity, he encroached on the power of a god. It was the new world that taught him that man invents nothing, is incapable of pure invention, that would seem his wildest, most fantastic imaginings are no more than ineffective, distorted attempts to set down a half-forgotten experience. What had once appeared prophecies he saw to be memories, the day of judgment, when the heavens should flame and men call upon the rocks to cover them, belonged to the past before it belonged to the future. The forecast of its terrors was possible only to a people that had known them as realities, a people troubled by a dim race memory of the conquest of the air and catastrophe hurled from the skies. So, at least, his children taught him to believe. End of chapter 21. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.